Good morning. Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And before I begin, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for all that you have done for us. For Jesus Christ, your Son, who is Lord and Savior. Lord, I thank you so much that Jesus Christ is preached from this pulpit every Sunday. I thank you for the privilege to be able to come before your people today and fill in for Pastor Leach. We just ask your hand of recovery and blessing upon him. Strengthen him. Thank you that he could rest today and and get over his sickness. Lord, I ask that you would please use this message which you've given me to be a blessing and an encouragement and a help. We ask that you would receive glory and honor for everything that is said today. We ask that you would bless the reading of your word and just be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. No one knows what a year will bring. I'm sure as you look back on this year, 2013, or perhaps if you look at other more significant years in your life, you could not have imagined what that year would have brought. I hope you can remember the good things that this year has brought you, but for some of us it may have just multiplied our sorrows and added to our griefs. A new year is a time to look forward to new possibilities, new opportunities. We can hope for positive things and great blessings in 2014. Some of us, though, may be wondering if we're going to make it through 2014 and beyond or not. Maybe Christ will come in 2014, which would be wonderful. What can we look forward to in 2014? We can't be certain. We know some people say there are only two things that are certain in this life, death and taxes, and death isn't as certain for believers as it is for taxes. Um, There is something, though, that I can guarantee you will come to you in 2014. It's something that we may not want to think about, but thinking about it now before it comes will help us be ready when it befalls us. I can't promise you much in 2014, but I can promise you that trials will come upon you in 2014. New trials, unexpected trials, hopefully not trials that are too heavy to bear, but for some of you it may seem that way when the trial first comes. This may seem like a depressing way to close out 2013 and prepare for the new year. But I trust that when you turn with me to James 1, we will find some joyful and hopeful truths here from considering life's trials. James started his epistle with this news, and his book is one of the most treasured books in the Bible. So perhaps I'm not too crazy to pick this theme to start on as we think about the new year ahead of us. So let's read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So this passage deals with trials, and the title of my message today is Preparing for the trials of the new year, preparing for the trials of the new year. First of all, in the first four verses, we learn a lot about the trials of life. And the first thing we realize about the trials of life is that they are inevitable. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Not if, but when. And if you think about it, all of life is a trial. Each stage of life has its own trials. We are always looking forward to the next thing where we'll finally arrive and not have any more trials. So the grade schooler can't wait until they're in high school because then they will have arrived. But they find that it has its own difficulties. And the senior has arrived in high school only to become a freshman in college. And, and college brings its own difficulties. And then there is marriage. Well, once you get married, now you aren't going to have any more problems, except now you're married to one. And then <laughs> someone who points out your own problems. But then, well, once we have the baby, oh, that's a whole other st- story, right? And, and then, uh, well, once the kids get out of the house, we can just get through that and then... Life will be an ease, but then there's its own set of problems. Well, just when I can retire and get out of this job or to the next job, and we're always waiting for that next thing, but we never find it. All of life is a trial in one way or another. 
Hardships are trials, but so are times of prosperity. Will our faith hold true when we are being blessed? So all of life is a trial, and look how it says, meet trials of various kinds. So scripture promises trials, when they're going to come. Um, look at some of these verses here. 1 Peter 4.12, I'm just going to read them for sake of time. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. How many of us feel that way when we have a trial? Well, th- I didn't sign up for this, God. This is strange. No, it's, it's normal. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Acts 14.22, this is Paul going to all the churches that he started on his uh, first missionary journey, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The same word for trial. 1 Thessalonians 3.3, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. John 16.33, the words of our Lord, in the world you shall have tribulation. Luke 21.16-17, some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. The Bible promises us trials and persecutions both. Now, so trials are inevitable, but then they're also variable. There are various kinds of trials. We're not talking only about overt persecution of the faith. Hebrews 12.4, which Carl alluded to in his prayer, is talking about the whole chastisement as being a struggle against sin, and, and that is a trial that the Christian has. Struggling against our sin is a, is a trial. And in James, there are a, a variety of trials that come out. In verses 9 to 11 of the chapter we're studying here, poverty or riches, both are seen as trials. In James, knowledge is a trial. Knowing of a need means we must meet it, chapter 2, 15 to 17. Knowing enough to teach means more strict judgment upon you, chapter 3, verse 1. Knowing of an obligation, a moral obligation, means we must meet it. Chapter 4, verse 17. James talks about suffering for the faith in chapter 5, 7 to 11. Taming the tongue, which can do good and bad. 3, verses 1 to 9. Our energy and ambitions and plans can tempt us. Chapter 4. Illness of the body or the mind can try us. James chapter 5. So there are just a variety of trials that can come upon us. Sickness, suffering, um, poverty, riches. There's just a wide variety of trials. And then rejoiceable. So they're inevitable, they're variable, and they're rejoiceable. That's a, I don't know if that's a word or not, but you can count trials as joy. It says to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. That is not what you go to the person who just got pronounced with terminal cancer and turn to that verse um, and minister to them with that. Um, this, is, this is more preparation, kind of think of it as a vitamin rather than medicine. This is a Christian way to think of trials, that we should prepare ourselves now before we encounter that. Um, so this isn't supposed to be just a glib, oh, well, it's, it's just joy, just smile now that you're in a trial. 
But this is a repeated pattern in Scripture. This is not just James telling us to count it all joy. Look at 1 Peter 4, 13 to 14. You don't have to turn there. But it says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Then Romans 5 Three to five. This is Paul now. So he's Peter, James, now here's Paul. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So there he says we rejoice in our sufferings. Jesus said this in Matthew five eleven, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And then Paul again in 2 Corinthians 7. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. So we are to, to look at trials, persecutions, difficulties that beset us as joy. They can be turned to joy. So should we be joyful in trial? It's not, like I said, it's not a glib joy, not a happy-go-lucky kind of feeling, a pasted smile on your face. I'm a Christian, I'm suffering for Jesus, amen. It's not playing a mind game, denying the trial. Uh, Paul says we're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So we grieve with those that weep, we weep with those. We rejoice with those who rejoice. Instead, it's finding a way to see the trial as a joyous thing. In 1 Peter 1, it talks about how, though now for a little while we're grieved by various trials, but we rejoice when we see that it results in the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold. So it's a Christian perspective on trials, which allows us to see them as something which ultimately we should rejoice in. So trials of life are inevitable, they're variable, they should be rejoiceable, and then they're valuable, they're productive. That's what James teaches us here. He says, you know, in verse 3, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then in verse 4, steadfastness produces maturity or perfectness and completeness lacking in nothing. So the way we should view trials, trials are a test that produce endurance or toughness in us, which leads to a maturity, which leads to a proven genuineness of our faith, which gives us assurance and joy. So just like in that Romans 5 passage where it said that... um, it said that the sufferings produce endurance, produce character and hope. There's so many places in Scripture. Second Peter 1 also is like that. But this, this perfectness, this maturity, results in a genuineness. It's, we've stood the test and been found to be genuine, which is a good thing. And then we can look back on that trial and see God's hand in us, keeping us through it, And that can give us assurance knowing that he's for us, that our God is true, that our faith is genuine, 
And all of that then is something for our good. God gives us trials for our good. If you desire maturity, if you desire assurance, then you need to consider to consider or to count trials as joy. You should be looking forward to the trials that are going to come our way. They're opportunities to bring out a proven genuineness of faith, to bring out maturity in our lives. But we don't always see that when we're in trials. So that we need wisdom to face these trials. So the trials of life, James talks about it a little bit here in verses 1 through 4, and he'll come back to it. But the next thing he says is, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So the lack in verse 5 connects to the lacking in nothing in verse 4. He's not moved on to a new topic completely divorced from trials. He's talking about the fact that when you're in a trial, what word do you say more than anything else? Why? Meaning we want to understand. We need wisdom for trials. If we think that we're lacking wisdom, James has a solution for us. So we see, first of all, the trials of life, now the wisdom for trials. Why would we need wisdom for trials? Well, think about the natural fleshly reaction to trials, man's natural reaction. You'll probably identify with some of these points here. So one of the reactions is guilt. If only, if only I had done this, then I would have avoided that. Um, confusion. Why is this happening to me? Is God punishing me? Does God love me? Fear. What will become of me? If you've ever been out of work, that's an awful big fear. Or if you've been injured to where you can't work, what will become of me? Anger. How can they do that to me? It's not fair. Envy. Why aren't they suffering like I am? He cheats on the job and he just got the promotion, not me. Self-pity. Won't somebody feel sorry for me? Why isn't anyone comforting me? Hopelessness and despair. There's nothing I can do. I'm doomed. I'm trapped in this situation. I'm never going to get out. All of those are man-centered, natural reactions. They're, they're wrong, but they're natural. It, it comes naturally to us to react to trials in that way. Instead of focusing on our natural response to trials, we should go to God for wisdom. Focus instead on our great God instead of the problem. Look out from your own assessment and feelings in the problem. Look up and out to God. In chapter five, 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. Literally, let him ask the giving God. So he's the giving God. And he gives to all. And he generously gives. And he doesn't begrudge us. So focus on what a great God we have. He's the giving God. That's our God, the giving God. 
and he gives to everyone. And he generously gives, and he doesn't begrudge us. The Amplified Version helps us to see some of the beauty of this verse. It says, If any of you is deficient in wisdom, let him ask of the giving God who gives to everyone liberally and ungrudgingly without reproaching or fault-finding, and it will be given him. Us parents know all about giving begrudgingly. We do that a lot to our children sometimes. Oh, <clears throat> you know, you, you, need, um, you need more. Well, you, you wasted all that I gave you before, but um, we'll give you, give you more this time. Um, or it, it's very easy to give, and I need some, some money, Dad. I, you know, I need, I need to, to have some. What do you do with the other money I gave you? Well, okay. So as a friend, um, there's just many times where we can, we can identify with that begrudging. Well, this, this once I'll give you again, but you need to learn your lesson. You need to, to you know, we, we give a little bit of a, a little uh, reproach in with our giving. God doesn't give like that. He gives us, he, he doesn't say, Carl, you asked me for wisdom yesterday and all last month and you didn't get it at all. And now you're coming to me again? All right, this once, I'll give you some. No, he, he, he is a gracious, generous, abundant, giving God who doesn't chide us when we come to him for wisdom. So all we need to do is have simple prayer, and it was a wonderful song to tie into the theme of the message today, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. We come to him in prayer. All our, have you trials and temptations? Come to him in prayer. He will meet us. Simply ask. That's the key to get wisdom. Just ask. Ask the giving God. It's not a formula in some special hoops you have to jump through. This is who God is, so come to him. Simply ask and ask in faith. Ask from a standpoint of faith. It's not how well you ask or how genuine you are asking. Or I'm sorry, it's not how well you ask, but it's how genuine you are asking. You're sincere and you're faithful. You're coming to God believing he can give you this wisdom. Perfect faith is not required because faith is a gift. We see that in chapter 2, verse 5, how God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. Trials increase our faith. The kind of faith that we need to come to God with to receive wisdom for trials is the kind in Mark chapter 9, I believe, help thou my unbelief. The wavering that it talks about is a constant wavering lifestyle, not a momentary doubt. So we should not be fearful to come to God. We should come to him in our trials. He has wisdom for us in our trials. So we see all of life's trials. We see wisdom for trials. And then quickly in verses 9 through 12, we see gospel hope for our trials. In chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. I don't have time to get into all the specifics of this passage here, but 
basically we see the rich poor. We see uh, economics in light of eternity here as an example of handling trials. The rich poor is the perspective on ultimate riches standing in Christ. They may be poor in this world, and many of the believers were very poor, but they were rich because they were going to be exalted on the day of Christ. So they didn't identify and and focus on their poverty only. They thought about their standing in Christ. And then there's the poor rich, people who are mindful that though they may have this world's goods as a believer, yet like everyone else, those goods are not going to last. They're going to be cut down one day and so they use that for God's glory in supporting the brothers and in using it for, as, a, as a temporary blessing from God. Mindful of their constant need of Christ, they bend low at the foot of the cross. And those verses teach that life is transient. It's a flower and then it's gone. Just as quickly as the summer flowers fade is as quickly as our life is over. So based on the gospel, ultimately, only those who are born again, as James 1.18 talks about, and saved by faith ultimately are exalted in the last day. Again, chapter 2, verse 5. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So the gospel gives us a perspective for trials. Trials are going to be temporary too. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 4 that our light temporary affliction works for us an eternal weight of glory. Then there's verse 12, the ultimate test. So as a recap from where we've been up to verse 12, all of life ultimately is a test. Passing this test, remaining steadfast under trial, results in the crown of life. So blessed or happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. The crown of life is not just an optional reward for those who do a good job in trials. It is life. If you study the crowns in scripture, the crown of what the crown is of is what is talking about. The crown of righteousness is receiving righteousness ultimately. The crown of life is receiving life ultimately. There may be a golden hoop on your head too, but it's about all of life. Revelations 2.10 is similar in this regard. It says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Uh, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The same... Idea is this eternal life in Revelation 2. So the crown of life is not just an optional reward. It is life. You receive true life as you stand firm under trial. Life is won by those who endure. Believing people who believe in God will endure trials. But it's not just for those who endure. It's for those who love. It says which God has promised to those who love him. No one's going to be in heaven who doesn't love Jesus. So we're all going to get this crown of life if we endure life's tests and we hold on to our love for Christ. Trials produce endurance in the godly people and endurance produces maturity. It's not just about our efforts, but our hope in the gospel. 
So that's what trials do to us. They're a means for God to work in us his changing grace to change us and help us. Now the part I really wanted to focus on in our, in our text is these last uh, few verses here. So bear with me. So we've seen all of life is a trial and there are many kinds of trials. We've seen that God has wisdom for us to meet our trials. We've seen that there is a gospel perspective on trials, a gospel hope. And now God and our trials, verses 13 to 18. So in verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. This can be a very puzzling verse because God does tempt people. If you read the Old Testament, he tempts Abraham, he tempts Israel. The word tempt is the same word as the word for test. Right in this text, in chapter 12, the word test, and then chapter verse 12, verse 13, the word tempt, it's also used for trial. So what is going on here? The key is to see how this fits the context of what goes before and after. Verse 16 do not be deceived goes to verses, can, is kind of a bridge. It, it connects us to the following verses, 16 to 18. Um, and it talks about bringing forth death for sin, and then that connects us with the bringing forth in verse 18. So the key is verses 13 to 18 go together. And when you see that, it helps us to understand that there are two responses to trials it's talking about here. We've already seen the first response which verse 17 brings out again, that trials are gifts from God. Trials are tests. They're sent in order for us to succeed in them. God wants to give us endurance, which leads to maturity, which shows our faith to be genuine, which gives us assurance and hope. So that's one way to receive a trial. The second response to a trial is that it's a trap. It's not a gift. It's a trap. God is out to get me. God is tempting me. This is an impossible situation. It's a setup to fail. When we view trials as God out to get us, that leads to sin. When that response comes from, our, from us, from inside of us, that lust it leads to sin, which brings forth ultimately death as we shipwreck our faith. It shows that there's something wrong on the inside of us. We haven't been changed. So the biggest danger of the trial is not what it can do to us, but what it might do by us, by our reaction to the trial coming along with it. Bitterness, hatred, envy, and just checking out on Christianity abandoning the faith altogether. We sit here in the pew and we nod our head, but we know people who have done this, people who have blamed God for things, who have cursed his name because of trials. It starts subtly, though. It starts with listening to those man-centered reactions to trial. God must not love me. Maybe God doesn't care about me. God must be punishing me, even though I did everything he wanted. God isn't trustworthy. How could this have happened to me? This isn't fair. If we listen to those thoughts 
and follow them and listen and just dwell in them. We need to be woken up to that. James says in verse 16, do not be deceived. There are thoughts which are deceiving. He says, don't be deceived. God does not intend our failure through our tests, through his tests that he gives us. He gives them to us as good gifts meant to grow us, not to crush us. So again, in verse 17, we go back to the giving God. What is God like? So we know what sin is like and how bad it is and how it leads to death. And it comes from within and there's that natural response in us. But the, the tests from God, it says in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So God is good, first of all. He's good. He gives good gifts. He doesn't change. When the trial came, God didn't run away. He didn't all of a sudden start treating you differently. There's no change with God. He is in control. It says he's the father of lights. He is up above. Nothing is catching him by surprise. He knows about the trial. In fact, he gave it to you for your good. And he intends, and he's behind everything for our good. For he intends or he wills our spiritual birth. Of his own will, he brought us forth with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He wants this trial to purify us and show our faith is genuine. So ultimately, God gives trials as good gifts for our ultimate joy. There's two ways to respond to trial. God is out to get me. I doubt his love and care for me. And I am going to run away from him. I'm going to be crushed by the trial and go away from God. Or this trial is really hard, but I know that God is bigger than my trial. I know he's given it to me as a good gift, that, he, that everything that comes to me is a good and perfect gift from God. And I go to him for wisdom to meet my trial. And I see that his hand is going to sustain me through it. And on the other end, I'll be singing his praises. I have that gospel-centered faith that God loves me and he's working for my good. I hope you can see with me that God intends good things for us this year. In the trials of life that will surely come, God means to grow our faith, to stretch us, to cause us to pray more. God wants to set us up so that he can intervene and prove himself faithful to us. I hope that none of us will be broken by our trials, but rather we will determine to count them all as joy. And we'll look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who endured the worst trials anyone has ever had to endure and came out on the other end of them rejoicing and triumphant. We need to rejoice in and through our trials because we are setting our minds and our hearts on the true prize, the crown of life, the true prize that we have with Jesus Christ. Our praises should go to the great giver, the giving God who gives us every good gift and every act of giving. It all comes from him. 
So look forward to some good gifts in 2014. Smile. This is normal. I know it's countercultural, but they'll think we're crazy. But smile. Our God is in control. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just praise you because you are working to bring about true faith in us. Lord, that everything good comes from you. And everything that doesn't look good, you turn it to good for those who love God. You work all things together for good to those people who love you. And Lord, we just ask and trust in that, that you would please be with us. I'm not aware of anyone going through a deep, dark trial right now. But if there is someone, Lord, we ask that you'd sustain them and give them grace. The rest of us, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to take this as a vitamin, Lord, as a, something to reinforce us in our thought process so that when we are tempted to doubt God's goodness, we'll remember he's the good God who gives us trials ultimately for our joy. We do pray these things and we trust you in Jesus.